Hello fellow sim racers and welcome to another episode of Talking Sims. Today I'm joined by Nils Naujox who is the manager for Red Bull Esports and G2 Esports as well. We're going to be talking about professionalism in esports, driving, driving at the top level and trust me there's some excellent insight in here from Nils who's both a competitor and a team manager so we're seeing both sides of things and we're also going to be talking about driver coaching which will lead to a video tomorrow where Nils is going to be coaching me in a set of course competizione and trying to find just how I can get that little bit quicker. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Nils. First of all, how are you doing, man? Uh, perfectly fine. Early morning here, as well as for you, I guess. Yeah, actually, I did a podcast recording at, uh, at 6 a.m. this morning with, with some Aussies. So uh, this is uh, this is video number two of the day of four, I think we're doing today. So it's a big, big day for, for me, at least. Busy men. <laughs> Very much so. So I guess always the first place to start with this kind of thing is give you a chance to introduce yourself uh, to the audience who may or may not know you. Uh, tell a little bit about who you are and what you do in sim racing. All right. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. First, uh, great channel that you've built there and always great content to watch and happy to be part of it. So I'm uh, Nils Nodjox, uh, the name probably more difficult to pronounce. <laughs> um, and I'm, well, what am I? I'm, I'm manager of the Repo Racing esports team, first and foremost. Then we also have a G2 sim racing team still. And I happen to be a sim racer almost 20 years back uh, until 2010 or so then had almost a decade long break and i think with e-rock 2019 i really got back into the whole topic and it's just one and a half years and since then things uh, picked up pace quite quickly yeah that's actually uh, i knew your name from back in the old uh, live for speed days i think is where where i know it from but I, it was actually quite surprising to me that it was so recent you'd actually gotten back into the sort of professional side of things that um Especially after seeing you at, uh, I think we first met at the SRO Monza, actually. So that would have been fairly early in your uh, sort of coming back to sim racing, I guess. Uh, yeah, indeed. It's, I mean, I was um, going school, studying, had a totally different career life ahead, basically. And then there was, I think, late 2018. I just had a little break between jobs, so to say, and didn't really have a new job coming up. And all of a sudden, there was that E-Rock qualifier that I think Danny Engels told me about. So the former head of Repo Racing Esports and G2 Sim Racing. And he said, well, you know, this might be a competition for you. Just take a look. And then I just went to the store, got a Logitech wheel quickly, um, got up to speed, luckily, and pretty much got hooked a couple hours in um, to the, yeah, not to the, um, what do you call it, to the... Well, my girlfriend didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this is uh, this is one of the perennial problems with sim racing. Uh, interesting that you mentioned that you were straight back up to pace because uh, I don't. Well, I've not really taken big gaps in in sim racing. I've taken sort of years off here and there, but it's only really in the last sort of four or five years that I've taken it sort of fairly seriously. But I've no, I have noticed that it does come back to you fairly quickly, which is which is nice to know. Maybe I can go and take a holiday in that case. <laughs> it's it's a bit like bicycle driving, I, I reckon, because everything, or um, especially the games, have developed a lot since since when I was driving in the past, and the hardware as well, the visuals as well, and you just get maybe even more feedback than back in the day. So being used to working with a little less, 
um, I think it was maybe easier to come back and then just tap into more information that I could work with. It's definitely difficult to go back to some of the older titles and just immediately be on pace. I've noticed that myself. But we're getting off topic already, which is pretty much what I do here. The main topic of today's discussion, and I've got to be honest with you, this is something I've wanted to talk to you about on this show since I first met you, because we've had lots of conversations about these kind of topics. And, and I know, honestly, that this is going to be a really interesting discussion. So we're going to talk about professionalism in esports as, as one of the big main topics of this discussion. And... Maybe, well, let's start with something kind of positive, I think. And with the recent COVID events, there have been quite a lot of challenges for particularly the real life drives and teams, but also the, the sim racing establishment, getting everything to work together and getting everyone to sort of be on the same page. So maybe we can talk about a little bit about how that's progressed from right at the beginning of, of this, where I don't think it's unfair to say that you know there were some teething problems to all the way up to last week's Le Mans event where it almost seemed like everyone was rowing in the same direction throughout the event across every single part of it perhaps even for the first time um yeah so initially i think uh, as everyone basically did in the world kind of underestimated the the depth and scope of what this crisis will become so i think at the beginning they were trying to delay a few real races and then you know let's get back to it in a couple of weeks or months and then as it started to become or as people started to realize that this is going to stay with us for a while then i think the thinking shifted a bit and they were thinking about finding new options and luckily there are by now or before there were already a couple of uh, racing drivers real racing drivers that had an affiliation to sim racing or just having it as a hobby i mean in particular max verstappen and Lando norris i guess plus a few others that well were, are not that famous maybe um and just by them being there already i think that kind of got the attention to sim racing a little quicker than it would have if they weren't there yeah i, I think it's I think it's pretty fair to say that having Max and Lando on board to start with adds a sort of star power that perhaps some of the others maybe didn't have to start with and, and has made the whole transition a little bit more simple. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, sort of professionalism as we go through this, but where I want to really start this discussion properly is that I think racing esports sort of lives in a bit of a, a twilight zone where it's actually been around for a really long time, but there are a lot of elements of it that feel like they're pretty underdeveloped uh, compared certainly to other esport events. So maybe we can talk about some of the areas that are maybe lagging behind and what's really needed for racing esports to reach some of those highs. Um, so let's start with a, with a few things that I think are overlooked sometimes. Uh, for example, there will be, if we look at other esports, traditional esports, so to say, if we can talk about tradition of a rather young um, yeah, area of, of sports, then we would have uh, Counter-Strike or Rainbow Six or League of Legends, and they are all their own category. And when we talk uh, sim racing or racing esports or whatever it's called, there are so many names for it, <laughs> then you always have... 10, 15 games or so that all fall into the sim racing category. So we're not talking about Assetto Corsa esports or iRacing esports, but we have sim racing as a whole. And then attention is always split across various titles. And I think that's one of the bigger issues sim racing always had, that there are different communities that kind of live side by side rather than in the same space. Yeah, actually, that's, uh, that's sort of a pet subject of mine is how 
weirdly homogenous the sim racing community is we are all really together a lot of the time but it doesn't take very much for everyone to get really tribal and separated out and uh, I, I know that's something i talk about a lot on the channel so i'm not gonna go down that road too much to start with but uh, some are, one of the other big problems that i've noticed and, and we've actually spoken about before is the shift that sort of occurred now bigger brands are getting involved in these esport competitions uh, particularly parties that play multiple roles uh, they might be involved in the media side of things uh, they might be involved in the broadcasting they might host the event as well uh, in one case uh, uh, let's just let's just say the race for example are controlling the media side of it uh, and the race and they're running their own teams in things as well so how does that affect the general balance in esport um, so first of all, I definitely don't want to call names or so because um, I don't think anybody has bad intentions with it. They're just trying to seize the opportunities that open up to them, and that's fair and square. But I think in the in the long run, um, there there is a problem with one party or let's say, um, yeah, one one group of the same people essentially or companies that control various. Um, areas of, of a competition. So as you said, there could be people that have access to the media and producing the content. Then they are also hosting the series and they are also filing their own drivers as they are also an agency in those very races. And I think there, it just opens doors to, to conflict of interest. And I'm not saying they're necessarily making use of it, but it's just too easy to exploit it. And um, the main problem, I think, is, and again, comparing it to the traditional esports side, is that there's literally not a single controlling body in, in sim racing that would take care for competition integrity, for example. If I would go to League of Legends, and Denny would probably be able to say a lot more about that because he's way more involved, is that, for example, Riot, the, the publisher of the game, is controlling the whole esports competition thing and they are putting out a very very tight rule book for what um, teams are allowed to do um, which partners they can um, line up with and for example there can't be the same sponsor in in two teams in a way because then there would already be a conflict of interest so it's very um, controlled to always um, avoid any issues that could interfere with clean and fair competition and i think in sim racing there's certainly a lack of that yeah i, I just want to be clear because i did sort of call out uh talk esports <laughs> and, and the race uh, those guys uh, that's one example there are you know uh, with sro esports last year we had uh the same people running the competition the broadcast and uh, one of the teams and uh, I had another example in my head uh, recently so there are multiple competitions in fact Red Bull sponsor things and sponsor drivers and sponsor uh, so uh, you know in in the interest of fairness there probably are a limited number of companies that get involved in these kind of things so there is a possibility for for these things to occur in in a very natural way what we don't want is to get to a situation where it's happening in an, an unnatural way to to gain an advantage I guess that's probably putting words in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking at, at one side of things is, of course, the, the competition itself, but there's also a competition offside the track, which means now that there's money in sim racing, there, of course, are, I mean, um, Red Bull Racing, the, the team I'm working for, is 
um, essentially trying to make this a viable product, right? So we are filing these cars in these races and we are trying to get sponsors on the car eventually, right? So uh, pretty much working like in traditional motorsports. And the problem we have is that leagues sometimes are not really aware that all the other teams competing in their very own series are trying to make this a product on their end as well. And um, I mean, and it's, I think, mostly visible in, let's say, NASCAR, for example, um, that they force um, quite a range of sponsors onto the teams. And it was also announced very late, so we couldn't really react. And then we got into trouble with our own partners. And then, for example, we had to pull um, one of our partners out of, out of the, of, away from the NASCAR because all of a sudden there was a big brand um, like a week before it started announced on, from NASCAR's side. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. And that actually kind of leads me into the, the next part of this, which was sort of talking about some of the, the business side of things. I'm someone that's really only been involved in esports on the broadcast uh, side of the bench. But it does seem like these events vary incredibly in their approach, uh, particularly in terms of business structure uh, and prizes. Is that something do you think that needs to change? Um, I mean, when you mean, mean change, change from what? Um, because as you said, we have different models and from which model do we want to get away and to which model do we want to migrate? Um, I don't think it's decided yet. <laughs> we certainly have a couple models to tap into, but let's say what most other esports uh, games do is have some sort of franchise model where the teams have some form of guaranteed income, have participation in whatever revenue the league makes from their own sponsor deals, for example, so that there's more, there's a focus on sustainability and thinking a little more long-term, whereas in sim racing, it seems to me like everything is very short-sighted, one or two years max, and always just landing some sort of gig in a way. So we have the league doing their sponsor, getting over with it, they bank the money, and that's it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that from, from my side, uh, my experience. And you get that, that comes across in the prizes as well, which often really bizarrely for what's supposed to be some professional esports competitions, the prizes are totally irrelevant, it seems, at times to the the people actually competing. They look great to the audience. I mean, like a track day in a Lamborghini sounds amazing to, to someone like me. But if you're trying to earn a living, uh, if you're trying to do this professionally, uh, and, you know, you win three track days a year. I mean, that doesn't pay the bills, does it? <laughs> it, it pays the heart. But yeah, as you say, certainly uh, not the bills. Um, and that's, I think, I mean, it really depends. We, we can have these competition because it, it's a great opportunity for, for people in sim racing because there are certainly a lot of guys who really fancy becoming a racing driver like James Baldwin did. And I know Sebastian Job always has an eye out for this this kind of stuff but eventually if we want there's a business for the brands that now invest in it and and i know red bull does i know ferrari does um like all the f1 esports teams do invest and eventually they want to see a return and that's really difficult with um these sort of competitions where you just gain the track day and eventually or potentially your driver that you try to um grow ends up uh, with another brand that didn't pay you a penny for it <laughs> yeah, driver development by way of sim racing is uh, its a new problem that we're certainly having. But it's something that uh, you guys are going to have to adapt to, I think. it's uh, You're doing all the hard work and uh, someone else gets to pay all the rewards. 
But speaking of uh, driving, uh, maybe we can segue into the topic of, well, driving. You're not just a team manager, as you mentioned, you've, you've been a competitor yourself and you undertake some coaching as well, which I want to get into later on in the video. But um, as as a team manager, putting your team manager hat on now, can you maybe talk us through the sort of type of preparation a top driver would undertake for an eSport event, for example, like the F1 eSports that you guys have uh, done so well in recently? Yeah, I've noticed that it's hard to change the hats. Uh, I always wear them all. But um, looking looking at my guys, and I, I mean, we are F1 Esports World Champion in the, in the team standings. So I, I guess we did something right last year, and especially our drivers did. And um, big part of the success, I think, was their huge amount of dedication. I think the, the game came out somewhere around this time last year, I believe. And until now, they probably have a thousand hours banked in these accounts. So talking or let's just average it out over 300 days, roughly, they have at least three hours a day spent in the game. And there were certainly a couple of weeks after F1 Esports ended when they didn't do anything. So that just points to them training at least five, six, seven, eight hours a day. And then let's say directly before an F1 Esports event, we would look more at like, I don't know if, if they were they were scared they wouldn't have the pace it could could end up being 10 or so <laughs> so what does that preparation look like i mean you know for for me i could easily spend eight hours driving around in a sim every day and not improve at all so maybe you could is it possible without giving away too many trade secrets what what some of the uh, the preparation for this actually sort of looks like in a bit more detail um yeah, of course, I uh, can't tap into our secrets, but um, I know that uh, we're talking about um, mostly very young people who didn't, in most cases, originate from, I don't know, they didn't stop another job, but they always kind of started in, in sim racing. So they, they're the first to really be full-time sim racers from scratch. They never did anything else or just had an apprenticeship or something. Um, so what I experience is that there needs to be some structure deployed for, for training else. It, I mean, there's so much to prepare, especially for F1 esports when you have three races on, on a race um, week, so to say, or it, I mean, it's across two days where you have three races and you potentially have uh, dry conditions, you have wet conditions, you have qualifying, you have race. So you have at least six different or rather 12 different scenarios that you have to practice for. And it's really easy to lose track of everything that you have covered and especially or even more what you didn't cover so far. And then people, drivers can get caught up in I know, focusing too much on one track and kind of neglecting an, another. So I think it's one part of it is kind of bringing structure to it. Um, and um, especially with these huge amount of hours, you need to start focusing on your body as well, because it's just sitting in these rigs and let's say they are not the most comfortable. They weren't designed to spend your life in it. Um, you really have to kind of take breaks and, and plan breaks and also plan coping because you naturally doing something this intense for these long hours, you will eventually have some pain here or there that you will have to deal with and the competition doesn't wait for you so you have to get back in line really quickly so um we, we started to um, include some sort of um also physical preparation but i don't think it has sunk in with everyone yet <laughs> uh it's well that's uh, another 
sort of part of the professionalization uh, of racing esports as well, isn't it? Uh, the sort of approach to total competition. Something that occurred to me actually, uh, having you know met a bunch of these guys at, at different events and gone to watch the F1 esports filming a couple of times as well. Yeah, it does come across. Uh, it doesn't always come across on television just how young some of these guys are. So do you do you guys? Do you guys have to undertake things like media training and things like that with them as well? Because they're, they're put into the spotlight pretty quickly, aren't they? I mean, there are a couple people, uh, without saying names, who are not that um, willing to talk a lot on, on camera. I don't think it's it's shyness. It's just, well, I don't know the reasons really. But yes, when with these big brands involved, we certainly are looking for this exposure stuff. So we need people to be... Um, eye candy, some sort, uh, and, and media needs to want to talk to them. So, yeah, indeed, we, we did have a media training, and we will certainly have a refresher sooner or later because it, it it's a progress always, right? You don't go to media training, and afterwards, everything is just perfect. You need to do it over and over again, get some routine in it, and there are just some people who are naturally more vocal than others. So there's, yeah, but there's certainly some something to it where professionalization comes in in that regard too. They need to be doing eight hours a day doing interviews with sim racing idiots like me. They're getting prepped. <laughs> anyway, right. So um, the next thing I wanted to talk about uh, in the sort of esports driving side of things is something I've noticed is just as a casual driver is just how much changes and updates changes in the meta if you will uh things like bop new builds and even new sims they introduce some challenges for for someone like me who isn't really doesn't really have any stake in this what's it like for for you guys competing at the front when someone like a, a kunos or a codemasters or whatever drops a big update two days before a massive event do you see that as a problem or an opportunity um, so yeah, there's there's another problem that is lurking in the background there, which is that the people making the games, so being the publishers, somehow don't have all the competitions on the radar that are happening with their game. Mm -hmm. So they're only focusing on the competitions that they run themselves, but everything else is kind of yeah sidelined and is not um, accounted for when when they push updates. Which could I mean, if you're running a league in your mid-season, all of a sudden all the in-game BOP changes and everybody in that series made card choices based on that old BOP, then all of a sudden your series is kind of flipped upside down potentially. Um, so there's, yeah, I don't know if these games need a community manager, basically having an eye out on all this stuff and pretty much talk to these people what, what they would need and when an update would suit them, can they make a break in their series, for example, to give them some some lead time to to cope with the changes on uh, and that's only the league side and then on the driver side of course and um, especially when you go to the high price money competitions like um, f1 esports or the porsche esports super cup then um, where the drivers rely on their on the prize money as their yearly income there's a high level of stress also because the level in those series is so tight you all often see the top 10 within a tenth or two so every minor mistake you can do or any tiny physics insight that you miss can already lead to be not being on the front but um further down the grid like 10th or 15th or something yeah well on that note uh you know you've been you've been competing since certainly a live for speed days maybe before that um if you can correct me on that how has the uh how has the level of competition progressed during that time 
So um, that was always when, when my time and I was excelling in the first speed back in the days. Um, certainly sim racing was a lot smaller. There weren't as many people, but there, were, there was always at least one or two guys in every series that could just... Uh, that were just on the same level as me, so that was I was never alone at the front. And I think these days that at least 10, 20 times the people do sim racing or even more. Of course, the density of high-level drivers has increased a lot. I don't think the like the driving skills progress, but there's just more people having a very similar level of their driving, and that just makes these competitions. I guess a lot harder than it was back in the days. I mean, if I had a bad day, I was P5 or so. And if I have a bad day now, I'm P20 or 30. Well, yeah, I mean, this is it. You know, when you look at F1 eSport events or SRO events and things like that, and the top 20 guys are within a second, there's, uh, you know, it's it's pretty pretty tight at the top and it can often be a lot closer than that as well which is it's terrifying you know you look at grids that get posted sometimes and you think all oh, right well uh, top five under a tenth that's uh, no room for any errors at all and that's something that actually i the, the main takeaway i get every time i watch an esport event and you get one of those nice long onboard shots when maybe there's not much going on in the race itself and the director's been like oh, okay well let's just watch the leader from on board for a bit and you just watch two laps of just total metronomic precision but what you don't see is that you know when you're on site at one of these events and you stand behind one of you guys while you're doing it it's 30 laps like that or 40 laps like that and the small mistakes one or two small mistakes over a race can be the difference between first place and fifth and it's just totally mad uh, the level it's certainly i would say the level is higher in terms of uh, sorry the the stakes are higher than in a lot of motorsport categories where you can maybe get away with missing the odd couple of apexes over the course of a race but uh I'm put, again, I'm putting words in your mouth there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can build on that, no problem. Um, so yeah, as, as you say, in real motorsport, it's maybe you can miss a couple of apexes just because your car is faster. But I think the more important factor in real motorsports is that your payment doesn't really depend on the exact result that you do. So if you get second or third or third or fourth has less impact on your career and and income especially and i would argue that for a formula one driver it more yeah more often than not doesn't matter if he gains or if he earns half of his income or the actual full income but for everyone doing sim racing um like they really depend on on each dollar or, or euro that they can win and then being second or third in the season can can have a major impact on on your yearly income so i guess the well, i would say that the pressure in sim racing is considerably higher on on the top level drivers yeah i mean the incentivization is is clearly massive uh, and on that note uh, kind of a, fu a fun question to to sort of round out this this part of the discussion do you think that there will ever be sort of a Michael Schumacher moment in, in racing esports where someone comes along and finds a whole bunch of areas where maybe other people have been not focusing as hard and just takes this, to use Ross Braun's word, total competition approach, where they just focus on, on everything and just getting those little 1% increases across every area and then just goes on to totally dominate or is, or is everything at too high a level for that already? Um, I'm... I'm pretty sure we already see this sort of stuff. Um, if we go to iRacing, we had uh, Redline for several years at the forefront, um, also because they just take every driver on board. But um, <laughs> on the other hand, um, there is um, 
not going to lie, Koanda SimSport is doing a great job with what they're doing, and they're always at the at the front of each race they're competing in. So they are they are very advanced in the in the drivers that they have, um, especially Josh Rogers, Mac Beckham. Um, if they don't all come to my mind, sorry, <laughs> Kronke back in the days maybe. Um, and then I know they have a couple of, of great engineers in the background who, I mean, they're also driving, but they're investing a lot uh, in the team in the background where uh, they're just, I don't know, taking the game apart, looking at the physics, testing huge amounts of stuff, certainly. And um, just to make sure to always have that, that tiny edge a bit, I'm sure we can, we can challenge them there. We already do, I believe, and uh, we're looking to do so more in the future. So we're trying to be one of these teams, certainly, that um, goes into that Schumacher direction, ideally. <laughs> yeah, well, that was kind of the answer I was sort of angling for, a bit there. <laughs> rather than just be like, now nah, we're all rubbish. There's loads of ways we could be better. I think that would have been a really bad I, I answer. I mean, basically, we don't need the Schumacher moment. We, we can have a Vettel moment in Red Bull times as well. So we're <laughs> perfectly, we've been there. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that works. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of my uh, my panic questions now, which I quite like these, just to sort of uh, keep things light. Um, and the first one, I'd, and I've been asking everyone this, so I apologise. Um, if damn it, I should have watched. <laughs> if you had to get stuck in an elevator with one sim racing personality, who would you least like to be stuck in an elevator with out of the sim racing world? Least. Yeah. Time to name names. <sighs> <laughs> um, I don't know. There's, it, it's too difficult for me to, to answer that because there's always. I know that I have enemies on track, but I know that if we were in the elevator, we'd certainly find the common ground as well. So if I take my recent races, there would probably Amir would have a role in that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. Uh, no one said me yet, so that's good. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for the day where they're just like. Dude, this interview has been awful. This this is my elevator <laughs> moment, but no one's no one's thought of that. So, uh, the next one that I've been asking everyone uh, is, uh, and I hope you know this. No one's no one's not known this yet. There's a classic Simpsons episode called "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," where Homer is tasked to design a car by his brother for the average American. If you had to design a car, a real world car or a sim car, for the average sim racer, what would it look like? What would it be like? And do you think it'd be more successful than Homer's attempt? <laughs> um, I can only imagine Homer's attempt of building a barbecue. That, that's what <laughs> comes to mind with me. Um, so building a, a simracing car. I actually had conversations around that um, a couple of weeks ago with Dennis Lind, uh, if you know him. So he, he's one of the real uh, GT drivers in the SRO esports and real sports uh, championship. A friend of mine from back in the Live for Speed days. And... He's been involved with um, creating cars for, or at least giving input about cars for Factor 2. And um, so we had a conversation about what cars really need to do in order to have great competition. And one thing that we have in, in racing and then also in sim racing, because we try to model everything from the real world, is uh, once we go into faster cars, we usually have a high amount of downforce involved. And that usually leads to some stuff or like downforce loss um, for the car behind. And that usually also becomes a problem in, in, in sim racing games, especially in formula cars. So if I had to design a car, I would probably just have, um, because the sim gives us the option, right? Design a car that has downforce levels, but where the downforce for the following car isn't as affected as it would naturally be um, if you adapted from the real world. Um, the other thing would be 
Uh, I'm sure there is an engine concept that is more interesting than others, but um, to be honest, this is not an area of focus for me. Um, and then what else would there be to the car? Um, I wouldn't go for a road car, certainly, so it had to be a race car. I would certainly limit the amount of setup options just to eco the playing field a little more, let the people focus more on the driving side of things. Um, because every setup option you give involves something in the physics and that always, as we are having games and we're having PC or, or written code, there's always an option for exploits happening because the code doesn't work as expected. So I'm, my idea would be to reduce the chance of, of including unintentional exploits in the car. Uh, running out of words, maybe. <laughs> no, that's really good. I mean, that was a, a really throwaway question. It's supposed to be just a bit stupid. Uh, like, uh, I think the first person I asked was Ricardo, um, random call sign, who basically said, "Oh, I just put a uh, yeah, I just put a, ra- a, a sim rig in the passenger seat." <laughs> so, uh, but that was a really interesting answer. Like, uh, that gave a lot. I think it gave a lot of insight actually. So, I'm, I'm enjoying these panic questions. They always turn up something interesting. <laughs> But let's move on to uh, back to the uh, the prepared remarks. I say prepared. The questions I wrote down earlier, <laughs> and let's talk about sort of uh, your third hat, which is I guess is as a coach. So first of all, do you want to introduce the the coaching service and talk about maybe why you decided to move into this area? Um, yeah, let's. I need to do a little circle there, or half a circle. Um, I was actually starting my, my YouTube channel several years ago, and it, after a couple of videos, I really lost, uh, lost it or didn't, didn't give any more attention to it. But I started, or I got fed up with um, in, or, or teaching videos on YouTube, so to say, where people try to tell people how to go faster, and they really didn't go into the detail that would actually make you faster. They would give you, I don't know, the typical stuff like, here's the braking point, brake hard, brake in the straight line, uh, clip the apex. Yeah, of course, what else? Um, then go on the gas early and uh, take all the speed onto the straight, which is pretty much like every real Formula One onboard lab is commented on because the cars are just way too quick to really go into detail. You have, I know in Monaco, you have 20 corners or so to go through and it just takes the car a minute and, and a couple of seconds to, to lap that. So you you really only have five to 10 seconds or even less per corner to say something about it. And um, yeah, in the, in the end, there's there's so much more information, so much more with the car that's happening that is interesting, what the driver needs to know in order to, to change his approach to that corner, that I started to go a little more into this detail. And then, as I said, it died off a little. And then now, as I get back or got back into sim racing one and a half years ago, I also uh, picked that up again and um, recently has been going really well. Um, I received um, a lot of positive comments on that because I think there's actually something unique to the information I'm trying to share. And then I saw, well, yeah, you know, there are coaching services on iRacing. Um, there's a coaching service by, I mean, Dave Perrell started it. And that got me the idea, well, you know, I know this stuff. I could, I could tell that to people too. So I thought, okay, let's, let's give it a try. Uh, first couple sessions I made uh, way cheaper just to get people interested and also test myself if I could really um, transport that information that I think is relevant and if it would really make people faster. And as I went along, I think I had at least coach 40 people by now or so. Um, I think everyone progressed. Uh, not everybody answered, but I, then I just assumed they progressed and didn't need any more coaching. Um, <laughs> 
and since it got rather time intense, I, I had to go up with the pricing a little bit. But now it's yeah something I regularly do. No, uh, and and it's great. And for people that haven't seen Neil's race, he's take it from me he knows what he's talking about here so what does a typical driver and coach session actually look like and maybe how does that differ uh, how does that differ for amateurs like myself and actually let's just totally derail that question i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna sort of let the cat out of the bag now that after this recording uh, nils is gonna do a coaching session with me uh, I've already provided him my lap, so he knows exactly what cards I'm holding. So uh, hopefully we can improve, and I'm going to find out. But for you guys, um, what does it what does it sort of look like, and what's the difference between teaching uh, a well-intentioned amateur like myself and someone that actually knows what they're doing? Um, I mean, you're certainly not an amateur because you're in sim racing for quite a while. Um, so you know a lot of stuff and we usually will be able to to talk the same language so the gaps are actually not big usually it will be that we find um, and i i mean i just had a brief look at your data but it's the same for everyone really that there will be one or two patterns that you will repeat every corner mid corner exit of the corner entry of the corner and um, with just looking at one corner we more often than not can find something that will be present in in all corners of the track and then if we find half a tenth in the first corner it's very likely that we find the same half a tenth in all the other corners too and if you just think about well gaining half a tenth in that corner it doesn't sound that much but over the course of a lap it usually adds up um so what i'm going to say is that even if you're behind two three seconds of the top guys you're still not doing bad because you know the basics already so you know where to put the car. Maybe you're not maxing out on, on the full width of the track, for example. But um, more or less, you're there. They're just tiny adjustments that need to be done. Um, and especially for, say, the beginners or those being a little further away, I go a little more into concepts while coaching. And when I had the chance to coach a couple real racing drivers that now migrated to sim racing, um, it indeed was a bit easier in the sense that I didn't have to explain these concepts because they already knew them and if i showed them the data they were immediately seeing oh yeah i I get this thanks this is already part of the story and then um speaking with real drive race drivers really interesting because i also learned something back from them because they use a couple terms that weren't known to me at least um but i i had that in my driving just i didn't even know i was doing it and um i wasn't deploying that technique for example which now i have a name for uh, and then I think the real drivers just always pick it up a little quicker. They are they are quicker to convert all that information, while the sim racer that's two three seconds off just um, might take an hour longer to deploy the new ideas into his driving. Uh, I mean that's really interesting. A couple of points you made there that I like to pick on. I've long maintained that the difference between again like a fast amateur or whatever you want to someone that's fairly can go and win online lobby races and be quick in a sort of club racing scene, but is a way off of the esport guys. I've always maintained that difference is about a tenth of a second per corner, uh, and that adds up often to you know between a, a second and, and two seconds a lap depending on. Uh, where you are and it was really interesting seeing the the comparison that you sent through you sent through a little bit of data that it was pretty much that one tenth of a second uh, per corner so it, one it was really nice to have that sort of opinion validated not that that means anything at all but i can't let you mention uh 
coaching real world drivers without trying to pry some stories <laughs> out of you. So, uh, yeah, uh, have you got anything tasty to tell us about uh, teaching some of the real guys? Um, tasty. Tasty is difficult, uh, of course, um, to keep my business viable. I'd rather not expose those people, but <laughs> um, there were always interesting talks originating from the coaching session and we ventured away from actual driving to whatever we, we came to, to hit topic wise. But let's say I had, um, I mean, since we're aligned with Red Bull, I had the chance to give Alex Albon a heads up in ACC when there was uh, an event with, with Charles Leclerc and all these guys. So he needed to go up to pace and it was really interesting to just spend an hour or two with him and then seeing him, how quickly he converts um, yeah, whatever I told him, whatever we saw in the data to the track immediately, like he really didn't even need the lap to, to change his driving. And uh, really, for me, it was really visible, the, or I could really experience the level where the real driving drivers are, especially in Formula One, they're just so, so deep into driving and they really know 10 times more than, than we do. And if they spot something, they immediately know what they have to change and what the car is doing. And I, when I started to explain something, then right away he was, yeah, okay, this and that, and extended on just why I wanted two words that I tried to start with. That was really a revelation, really. Yeah, and I think that's something that's been quite uh, interesting to see as guys like uh, Alex and... Um... George Russell as well of like when they migrated over to the the F1 game uh you know a few weeks ago they both just on the pace so quickly which for something that's I mean all sim racing's disconnected from the real thing in some way but I mean I think it's probably fair to say that the F1 game is is catering for a slightly different audience there and there are a few more maybe tricks and and exploits and stuff uh, and ways to drive the car that are perhaps a little less natural so for me it was just incredible maybe maybe i'm being unfair there but for me it's just incredible watching how quickly those guys particularly the young guns just got straight up to speed on that um i'm least surprised actually by by the younger people i'm more surprised by the likes of um let's say the older formula one drivers or montoya and alonso who are doing a yeah, fairly yeah. good job in sim racing too and then i was less surprised by, by george russell being up the front because we know i mean they know how to drive cars and they certainly know how to drive easier cars in in the virtual world all they really have to change is um in the that's actually a concept from the coaching that i'm teaching so you're getting that now is um that when real drivers step into the sim they are stripped of quite a lot of senses that they're using to judge what the car is doing at any time on track so in the sim we don't have any forces really that um affects or affects our sensory experience especially in the spine that has a really short reaction time to the brain um so in the real car you always sense everything a little earlier even than in the sim and then if you go to a game you have um, the screen that gives you a lot of information in the sense that how the horizon moves about so you get an um, a subconscious feeling of how fast the horizon has to move about from left to right or right to left. And if the horizon suddenly accelerates, then you know, oh, maybe I get oversteer. And if the horizon, for example, slows down, then you know, you know, maybe I have understeer now. And it's not like you look at your screen and, and search for the speed of, of the horizon going about, but you're rather developing a sense subconsciously how to judge that and that's how you learn to drive the car in a sim plus of course the steering wheel gives you a lot but we have to cope with with everything that we're missing from the real car and the other big factor in that is, is sound 
of course. So we were trying to listen to the tires, what they're doing, uh, trying to learn the noise that they're producing when they're at the limit, which is different in every game, which is why it's different to swap games, actually. And um, the other bit, of course, is um, you can hear a lot about tire slip and how the RPMs develop when you hit the throttle, for example. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that. Something I was uh, in a discussion the other day on a, on a different podcast. I, I made the comment for the first time sort of out loud that I think I would rather drive without force feedback than without audio. It's it's much harder to drive uh, without audio. It's crazy. Um, anyway, um, you've coached a lot of different experience levels of guys. We've mentioned this before. Uh, and coming back to something you said earlier, that lots of people make the same sort of common mistakes. So maybe you can just give us an insight into a couple of those things that just everyone, those mistakes everyone's making and what's holding them back from going faster. So one thing is probably connected to the sound thing that we just tapped into, that people are not giving enough attention to the tire, and especially not when the tire is screaming for help. Mm -hmm. So there are some people or, or many people actually who tend to overdrive the car in the sense that they're just turning too much. And it sounds it sounds easy, but it comes with additional problems um, afterwards, right? Because if you turn too much, then at some point you will have to open the steering wheel. And once you do that, you come across that point where the front end of the car suddenly develops grip again and having grip again usually to means means that the car will show a reaction and you're usually surprised by that and just by reducing your turning angle for example um, can also just um, change completely the way that you perceive the car to to um, act on on the exit of the corner so that's one thing for sure the just a turning angle something to look out for and listening more to the tires and the other thing is that people are um, a lot of times not making use of or not trying to exploit the car by transferring weight to certain corners of the car. And then you would see, for example, just to point out one pattern is that people keep a stable speed throughout the whole corner and have the throttle pushed around, I don't know, 20, 30 percent or something. And then once you go to full throttle, the reaction of the car is just going to be really um, tiny and you really you're, you can't really force all the lap time out of it if, if you don't force that reaction out of the car. And similarly, um, how you throw it into a corner just, just gets the car into a certain state that a lot of people are just not tapping into. Yeah, interesting stuff. And I'm sure we will uh, get into this in great detail in the, in the coaching video, which for the people that are listening on the podcast app will probably already be out. The people that are watching this on the day of release will probably be out tomorrow. Dear God, just follow me on Twitter for this stuff. It's impossible. To, it's impossible to predict when any of this stuff is going to happen. But I, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, let's round out the interview by asking uh, a fun question. How much does equipment matter? Um, yeah, typical question. Um, there is certainly something to it. Um, and going back again to this judging how fast the horizon moves about, it's certainly easier to judge that when you have a triple screen set up for the simple reason that you have, um, just imagine your triple setup, right? If you look to the middle screen, the pixels approaching you are being rather slow. And the more you go to the outside of the screen, the pixels will travel a lot faster. And if something moves faster, it also changes its speed faster when you're turning. So you just get more impression of pixels moving fast or slow around you, which just subconsciously, again, gives you um, a better way to, to judge what the car is doing. And also with having 
better visuals, you just have more reference points subconsciously in your head that you're developing that make it easier to learn a track, I would say. Then additionally, I think, especially on iRacing, the brake matters a lot. I know people are good with Logitech, but I think it just takes them way longer to to release the potential in them when, when they have um, inferior equipment uh, in that respect. I wouldn't I wouldn't talk too much about the steering wheel. I think that's that's one thing you can always easily easily change to. I think changing the steering wheel is a lot easier than changing pedals, for example, because the muscle memory in the foot, going from a travel-based pedal to to a load cell and to to um, pressure-based braking is is a bigger transition. Um, so yeah, I think. Being a fun, short question, equipment doesn't matter, but not to the degree that you're all of a sudden a second faster. So. Yeah, no, I think everyone that knows what they're talking about gives a variation <laughs> of that same answer, and that's great to hear. But I'm going to keep asking it uh, of fast people so I can keep pointing uh, at them and say, look, he said that it doesn't matter. So <laughs> don't trust me, trust him. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned brakes, actually, because the thing that I find really difficult transitioning between some sims, and it is mostly a bunch of sims and iRacing. Uh, it always takes me longer to get up to speed on iRacing than it does, say, jumping from Assetto Corsa to R-Factor or something. And it is the brakes. It's just the, the behavior of the brakes is, is, is tough for me to, to undo that muscle memory. And that sort, of, that sort of crystallized something I've been thinking about for a while. So uh, what is it specifically about the brakes in iRacing that, that causes that? Totally off-topic question. <laughs> uh, it's totally not. I mean... Um... We were into driving and sim racing. So the one, I think it's the most important thing in iRacing certainly is how you are able to be on the edge of what the tire can take in terms of braking. And what iRacing does different to all games is that in, I mean, in ACC you have, like the real car, you have ABS that sorts things out for you in a straight line. You still have to trail brake to not uh, overdrive the car, but it's, I think in ACC it's a lot easier to handle the brakes. Whereas in iRacing you just, you just can't slam the brakes. You would immediately lock up the tires uh, unless you have an ABS car too there as well. But um, especially, I think the most difficult difficult car in sim racing that we have is probably the Porsche 911 Cup on iRacing. <laughs> I'm glad you which, said that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it doesn't have any assists. It's a rather a tricky car to drive just for, for the weight balance. It has uh, just the engine concept it has, then um, the rather light front that it has. And... Um, Plus, of course, the tire model that iRacing has just forces you to always be very close to that grip limit. And while other games allow you to be above that grip limit and don't penalize it too much, on iRacing you're getting penalized loads when you overdrive the car just once. You never get it back in line. Uh, beautifully put. I think that absolutely summarizes my my thoughts on, on the iRacing driving experience and particularly the Porsche Cup car. And I think on that note, it's probably a good time to bring things to a close here so first of all thanks Nils for joining us uh everyone should tune in tomorrow or whenever it is relative to this video recording to watch the training session i think it's going to be really really interesting uh, so i'm going to wrap this up as quickly as possible so we can get on and do that so i guess all that's left to say guys is thank you for watching and enjoy the rest of your day thanks for having me